early Monday morning, mid-November, in South Bristol, on the Cattle Market Road approaching the long tunnel that runs beneath Templemead's train station. Up on platform 12, the Great Western Main Line screeches and grumbles, tannoys blurting timetable alterations to puddles of grey-faced commuters. But that's not for us. We're not working today. In fact, we're doing quite the opposite. We're going underground. And down here, in the subterranean dinge, other currents flow. The other side of this tunnel opens out onto the feeder. Just over a mile long, it's one of Bristol's main arteries. On its right side, industrial estates. On its left, a dilapidated canal. And running between the two, like a hot knife, the feeder road. A relentless tsunami of heavy metal, articulated lorries, container drivers, screaming sirens, coffee-fueled commuters, and the occasional petrified cyclist. Halfway down the feeder road, the Great Western Railway Bridge cuts horizontally above the traffic. The St Philip's Causeway rides alongside, and it's at this cluttered intersection that we're offered the most visceral snapshot of the canal's historic demise. Cast deep into shadow by rail and road. And it's on the canal, between a rock and a hard place that we'll find our quarry. We're in search of fishermen. My father caught me when I was four. And the first fish I ever caught was a little roach. He took it off the hook and threw it back in and I cried all the afternoon. I want to take it home. And I've been fishing ever since, really. I could sit here all day. I never, ever get fed up with it. Alan's 82 years old, and he's been fishing the feeder for 78 years. My uncle used to work for Remy Lysa. They used to make um, oil drums and stuff like that. And he used to live at Glendare Street. And he used to come down here and watch me fish, like to keep his eye on me when I was about eight or nine. But uh, I said to our dad about, because I used to catch a few down here when I was a little kid, you know. And he said I wouldn't ever go down there fishing, because it used to smell this water, it used to stink. 
I'm not an historian, but context is essential here, so bear with me. The feeder canal opened in 1809, with the purpose of bringing water from the tidal Avon into Bristol's floating harbour. This created a direct link to the port of Bristol, which encouraged new industries along the feeder. Industrial plants quickly started to clutter its banks, belching out huge amounts of smoke, grime and stench. Accounts from the time describe that of all the noxious emissions, the chemical plant, the tar factory, gas works, paint works and the cattle market, the one smell that stood out head and shoulders above the rest was Cole's Boneyard specialising in the jovial alchemy of converting dead animals into farm feed. With the canal on their doorstep, it's not difficult to imagine where the industry's byproducts and effluents ended up. By 1850, manufacturing had decreased and the shift in power from water to rail and road was complete. By the 1960s, the industries along the feeder had fallen into deep decline. And by the time the 80s swung around, most of the business had completely collapsed, leaving an industrial wasteland. The meat and bones section of Cole's Boneyard was one of the last to close its doors in 1981. But the canal remained. Abandoned, putrid and bubbling with neglect. My name's Terry and I've been fishing since I was about seven. I'm now 64 years old. Would have been about five or six years ago I got back onto the feeder because it was never really that clean. You was always a bit worried that you you might get something like you know because of the rats and things. But when it was down by the end by Avon Street, you had um, the big commercial areas there, and you always had stuff coming into the waters from there. So you know. Obviously the fishing was a bit a bit different then if you like, whereas now most of those industries are gone and the uh, fish seems to be coming back. So yeah, I'm quite happy to be able to come out on a Sunday, it's only 10 minutes from where I live and you can um, have a good day's fishing. For free? It is for free at the moment. Or someone decides different. From our most primitive days, we've caught fish, motivated originally by hunger. And maybe it's the primitive in all of us that encourages us to recognise the mystery and magic of fish filled waters. In the UK, there are generally speaking three types of fishing sea, game, and course. 
Sea fishing is self-explanatory, but the distinction between game and coarse fishing is not as defined. In the early 1800s, game fishing was known as a pursuit of the upper class, who fly-fished exclusively for salmon and trout. The other 95% of fish that populated Britain's freshwaters didn't make as good eating, and so they were condemned, on no taxonomic basis, as coarse fish. Game fishing required lots of spare time, the equipment was expensive, and the clean rivers and streams that the salmon and trout populated were mostly owned by the wealthy and made accessible for fishing only through exclusive membership. This division was reinforced in the mid-18th century when the workforce of the Industrial Revolution took up coarse fishing on the canals and lakes surrounding industrialised areas as a cheaper, more contemplative alternative to the pub. To this day, the official Fly Fishers Club founded by Basil Field in 1884, is so exclusive you can't even access their website without being an official member. The club's motto, daubed in Latin across the impenetrable holding page, reads Piscator non solum piscator. There is more to fishing than catching fish. And in the case of the feeder canal, that's an understatement. Unlike Latin, the feeder canal is for everyone. It's one of a small handful of waters in Bristol that are free to fish. The canal connects to the tidal Avon, so it's not stocked like the pay-to-fish lakes on the outskirts of the city. The fish can come and go as they please, and it's this element of unpredictability that attracts all levels of fishermen to the feeder, from the absolute beginner to the militant professional. I'm Robert, um, I'm 20, um, and I this is my first time fishing at the feeder. Since I was little, like a child, I've always wanted to go fishing. Um, and this past month I've, I got a new job, um, and I was able to afford um, the equipment. I work as a, a go-kart marshal, so it's very hectic and um, busy. So when I can just come, you know, after work or day after on my days off, it's, it helps me to just kind of chill. And especially I like to look at the fish, like the looks of them, um, different colours of blues and greens. And yeah, it's just, um, it helps me quite a bit. Searching for fishermen to interview is a lot like fishing. You need to be patient and understand your quarry in order to connect with them. There's always an element of luck involved. 
and it's beneath the humpback bridge that connects Marsh Lane to the feeder road that we chance upon Barry, a retired scout leader from South Bristol, herringbone flat cap, beige gilet and snow white moustache trimmed to perfection. The hunter has become the hunted. Oh yeah, my name's Barry, I'm a, a 17 next birthday. I've been fishing since I was about seven years old, but I've been fishing this feeder probably for about the last 10 years, even though um, I don't get down here after as often as I'd like. Yeah, my dad, he died ooh, 2015, so it'll be seven years, November. But he used to come out fishing with me, um, um, or I used to go fishing with him, then when he was older and I was a bit older, I used to t take him out fishing. Uh, when I was a kid, I wouldn't have come anywhere near this place. All through here and all, all up through Cru Cruzal, you could smell the, the smell of tar and the water was, was darker and uh, I didn't think that anything would live in here but um, when I was a kid. But um, it certainly cleaned up over the years, as, as the river has. Uh, but, and there's a lot more greenery grown up. It looks a lot, lot nicer than it ever did, yeah. Uh, I suppose there's a part of a man which is still a hunter, and I suppose that's the bit that goes, that likes to fish. So I was a scout leader, I used to take his kids on scout camp, I'd be up at four o'clock every morning fishing. Uh, and uh, a couple of times I caught trout and we knocked them on the head and had them for breakfast. <laughs> but um, yeah, game fish, um, mainly trout and salmon. Uh, posher people fish for that really. <laughs> Not ordinary people like me. <laughs> Uh, it's always been more of a relaxation and a pastime than a, than a competitive sport. No, I, I, my dad was always the same. He liked to go out and somewhere quiet and fish. And um, yeah, I'm just um, happy to be here and, and catch something or catch nothing, and uh, just to be at one. So, 20 minutes down here and. Um, 20 minutes home, dead easy to get to. So, and then when you're um, a married man and you've got a wife who likes doing things, you know, you've just got to grab a few hours here and there where you can. So, uh. Places are like people. They're complicated and they don't always say what they mean. Sometimes they're haunted by a past a present, a future. The feed is unique in that it fizzes with all three simultaneously. You're every time. At the police. You see your ablots of police up and down. Okay. About 10, 20 times a day. Some of the big vehicles that go up and down here, the big container, big containers, they don't have to make a row, man. They hit a pothole, you know. I blank most of it out. Obviously, when the police cars comes out of there, that's a little bit. Um, can make you jump a bit, because they come out with their sirens screaming, but other than that, I don't, I don't have no problem with it, like, just 
just blank it out like you know. The main road runs the canal's full length, never more than seven metres away from the water's edge. The derelict warehouses of Silverthorne Lane lie in the far bank for a quarter of a mile, followed by a string of active warehouses that continue all the way to Marsh Lane, where they're replaced by the fauna surrounding Netham Park. The opposite side of the feeder road is home to active industrial estates that run its full length. Scrap metal yards, parcel delivery depots, car sales showrooms, welders, florists and builders merchants. The Bristol Ambulance Service and the police station ensure a steady stream of sirens throughout the day. But despite the proximity of the main road, the lure of fish-filled water prevails. And like many of the local fishermen that frequent the feeder, Richard is glass half full personified. I think you I think you get used to it. It's um it's it's part of where you are fishing. I don't have to fish here. I choose to fish here. So it's taken the rough with the smooth. When you when you're fishing and you 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 you're in the moment and you are next to nature even though you've got lorries and cars roaring past. There's an incredible amount of uh of nature and we, we miss it because we're all in a mad rush and that's the great thing about fishing it's, it's, it's wondrous it takes you back it relaxes you and if you catch something it's even better I prefer the the autumn uh, the winter and the spring certainly uh, for the commercials for the big big perch but down here I see uh, I'm still learning every day is different Life. First coming, we're fishing. End story. This is the peaceful place. Peace. No peace. You don't see it. You don't want to hear it. We're here in the river. That's it. This is all yours. Compromise is the feeder canal's middle name, but it's not just the traffic on the road that the fishermen have to contend with. can't settle here really see with um, other water users in the warmer months hired boats and ferries head up the canal and through the Netham Lock towards Conham and Canesham 21st birthday parties stag do's weddings corporate cruises all pass by the fishermen like potential lifestyle choices for his consideration, accompanied by an unspoken demand for him to remove his rod from the water. Not the end of the world. Rowers, on the other hand, are a different species altogether. Uh, usually about quarter to six in the summer, you get the Bristol Rowing Club and you get uh, about eight or ten boats and they'll go up and then you, you've got um, uh, a boat with an outboard motor on that 
follows them to see what they're doing or, or instructing them. And uh, they got no, uh, what shall I say, respect for fish fishermen whatsoever. And if you have a go, you know, and it, you get a load of mouth. Competitive boat racing couldn't be further removed from coarse fishing. And it's on the feeder that this conflict of interest takes place dozens of times a day. Speed, momentum, competition. Next to the fishermen, it's a fleeting, comical juxtaposition that leaves a sloshing, slapping canal in its wake. Now and again, you get the odd one or two that sort of, um, well, the waves at you, and they, they're, you know, they're okay. You get the odd one or two that sort of think you shouldn't be here. We had a few rowers out this morning. They were what they were the sort. They're the worst because they think they own the river, but they don't. You know, just sort of ask them to keep out a little bit as long as you, as long as I treat them with respect. That's I think that's the best thing you can do. In the past, an unwillingness to compromise has resulted in tangled rowers and broken fishing rods. But for the most part, incidents are averted. Beneath the water's surface, that the fishermen's likelihood of entanglement triples. Down at the bottom of the canal, concealed by the heavily coloured water, lies a multitude of fly-tipping sins that collect to form a rusty metal reef for the fish of the feeder and the hooks of the fishermen. They, of course, they, they dredge it about twice a year. They get a dredger down here. And all the muck and sludge and everything else they get out of uh, the bottom there. There is a lot of stuff in here at the moment, whether people have thrown bikes in or whatever. Well, I fished up there by the bridge up at Marsh Lane and somebody chucked a supermarket trolley in there which um, was bad news. Because I like to fish in the, in the margins, you see. That's where you get all your big fish. All this business of casting out the other side, it's the same fish in here as casting two foot away from the opposite bank. I've heard fishermen say, it's not how long your rod is, but what's on the end of it that counts. And it's true, to an extent. The bait you put on your hook depends on the type of water you're fishing and what the fish are accustomed to eating. I've never really caught much on meat in here or, or corn. Like, I'm happy using all sorts of baits. I don't mind trying them, but uh, probably the most successful is hemp and tares and bread for, for better quality fish. Uh. I've got mangoes today, you can get any worm. Mangoes, worm, sweet corn, or dog food. Yeah, I brought worms down here the last time. I, I caught a little perch. She's, well, about the same size as a flipping worm. 
maggots. 100% maggots for me. Um, it's just ever since I was little, I, all I've known is maggots. Robert's commitment to maggots is unparalleled. And of all the baits used on the feeder, it's the red maggot that proves most popular. When maggots find their way into your home, it's supposed to be a sign that you're going through some process of spiritual transformation, of positive change and deep awakening. Could also mean you've got a fisherman for a husband who's accidentally left the lid off his bait box. No, the wobbler, no, the container is stuck. He's solid, solid. No, 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 we can't bring him. Oh, leave him down this yet. Okay. They won't, for some reason, I don't want to put him in the house. So go fishing with me, but you shouldn't put him on a bleeding hook. I've got to do it. Fortunately, I'm here to put Mike's bait on his hook for him today. And it's by following one of Mike's maggots down into the murky depths that we're going to try and imagine what life might be like beneath the surface of the canal. So without further ado, let's have a rummage in the bait box and see if we can't find a juicy one to mic up. Oh man, it's so cool being a maggot. I can't believe I'm 10 millimetres long already. <laughs> Not one to blow my own trumpet, but if I didn't know any better, I'd say I was the juiciest maggot in this box. Only six more days until I'm tucked up all cosy and warm inside that chrysalis, and then... When I hatch out the other side, I'll be a fully grown blue bottle. Absolutely buzzing. Hey, what the hell's going on? What do you think you're doing? Get them grubby sausage fingers away from me! And with that, Martin, our intrepid explorer, is attached to a hook and flung headfirst into the mercurial goop. Martin's eyes slowly grow accustomed to the gloom. His new surroundings begin to shape and define themselves. Shopping trolleys, scooters, cans, bottles, bikes, traffic cones, tyres, knives, rotten rope coiled like serpents, and ancient brickwork suffocated by luminous green shagpile algae. Trouble with being a maggot, there isn't a fish in this canal that doesn't crave for me. So succulent, so juicy. Sometimes I make my own mouth water. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> a flash of silver flickers in the gloom. Uh, 
think I'm just going to crawl inside this rusty tin can for a bit. Yeah, yeah. The sun momentarily emerges from behind rolling clouds. Shafts of muted light penetrate, illuminate and transform. And from the relative safety of his rusty tin can, Martin watches as a secret world full of life slowly reveals itself. A shoal of tiny minnow, each no longer than a match, dart tentatively from one secluded hiding spot to another. Hardwired paranoia, the predatory appetizers shimmer, olive and silver in the sun's muted beams. Then a kerfuffle, down on the canal floor, as a tiny plume of dirt and gravel rises up from the detritus. Gudgeon, bottom feeder extraordinaire, no bigger than a child's thumb, drooping whiskers on either side of a small, thick-lipped and snouty mouth. Elongated body speckled, grey and gold. He takes a breather, before burying his head back into the silt. Then, from above, a larger, sharper, energised flash of silver and red zaps close to the surface. Roach. Elegant, fast and delicate. Dark bronze back, gradient into a silver flank. Fins burning, red and orange. Up against the canal's far side, a gang of long, bronze silhouettes loiter beneath the shadow of some overhanging brambles. Four thick-lipped, large-mouthed, blunt-nosed chub slurp floating insects off the surface. And further down, beneath the shadow of the motorway bridge, an armada of bream hold the midwater, Sociable, placid, deep-bodied with a high back, almost circular. Dark brown silhouettes fall into formation. Youngsters close by their sides, the purest silver. Beneath the bream, a solitary tench, emerald green-bodied with ruby-red eyes, passes through. Reserved, nonchalant, stout body lined with elegant spoon fins. Then, on the canal floor, the zigzag of liquid metal on white belly through an assault course of detritus. An eel, long, thin and snake-like, camouflages itself to perfection against some black rubber cables before slithering on. And then, something bigger, grey and spectral, emerges through turgid supernovas of silk cloud, skimming the canal's bottom, rotund. Her huge scales change from grey to deep bronze as she glides closer, seemingly weightless. She slows and hovers, 
searching lips protract and retract in the silt. And once again, she is obscured by cloud. When the silt eventually settles, the carp is no more than a distant silhouette, returned to ghostly grey. Phantasmic, she vanishes back into the shadows. Suddenly, silver shatters as the minnow shoal explodes in 80 different directions. Spooked. Dark clouds roll back over the sun. Its beams retract and the canal bed is cast back into darkness. There's been a shift. All the fish have vanished. Nothing moves. And Martin begins to get a sinking feeling that he may not be alone inside his trusty tin can. As he turns slowly, two black beady eyes glisten back at him through the darkness. Uh, um, morning. Uh, I was just having a little breather in your tin can, pal. I'll, um, I'll, I'll be on my way now. All the best. Martin wiggles his way out of the can as the homeowner emerges from his lair. Olive green with dark brown tiger stripes, fluorescent red fins, jagged gills and scales rough as sandpaper. A spiked dorsal fin flares out from his humped back, jurassic and razor sharp to the touch. Perch will eat anything, minnows, worms, slugs, spam. But of all their carnivorous cravings, there's nothing they love more than a juicy red maggot. And as Martin's short life flashes before his eyes, he's momentarily distracted by a slender silhouette, well over a metre long, drifting towards them from the shadows, inanimate but with intention, as it floats unexplainably against the current, slow and impending malevolent, like creeping death. A huge yellow eye blinks open. The silent terror shapeshifts in an instant from driftwood to torpedo as its bony head angles to align with its prey. An ancient grinning mouth studded with razor-sharp teeth splays open as the monster bolts. A flash of green leopard pattern across gold thunders past as blood colours the water and with perch clamped vice-like the pike dissolves back into the shadows with his prize. You're probably not going to believe this because it sounds like a bit like of a fisherman's uh, tale. 
I, I wasn't fishing for pike. I, I, I caught, a, I was reading in, I think it was a dace or something, and then there was a massive almighty splash, and a pike came up, grabbed the, the dace, but I was, I was on about size 14 hook, and he caught the hook in its, in its lip. It, it's, it's kind of, it was such a fluke, it kind of, it, it, it grabbed it and then clearly the fish got off and went down its gob and, but the hook caught, you know, inside its, its mouth and it was just like flipping out, you know. Yeah, the rod just went like that. I, I, I'm surprised the line didn't, um, didn't snap, but it, you know, I managed to get him in. That was the end of the day. My wife was here with me and the float just went away and never stopped. So I went right down to the I went right down to the traffic lights down there. And um, a bloke got off his bike. He said, What have you got there then, mate? I said, I don't know, I haven't seen him yet. And I started tight lining. He come up on the surface and I couldn't get him out. He said, Well, haven't you got a landing net? I said, Yeah, about 40, 50 yards up the riverbank. So we come up here and he got it and we got the fish out. It was eight pounds, three ounces, common carp. Frightened me to death. It's funny, you know, I've, I've, I've noticed over the years when you, when you achieve your goals within fishing, there is an anti-climax because you think, well, where'd you go after this? It, you, you strive you fish all weathers and you strive to, you know, you, life stops, you, you commit yourself to this. It's like being a sportsman, so how can they say it's not sport? You, you focus, it takes over your life, it's mad. And then you, you catch your quarry, you go, and there's this emptiness. There is. When I've, I've had some huge fish, certainly perch, and you go, well, that was great to catch. You go, well, where do I go from, from now? And it's weird because I, I've now gone back to basics. So having... 10,000 10, pounds worth of carp gear, trolleys, alarms, delkims, blah, 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 to fishing down here with just basic stuff. Yeah. I love it. Two pounder, silver road, silver, silver bream, that's the one. Yeah, that's silver bream. I, I thought, oh, what's this? It was like that nibbling, I thought, oh, here it is. And I just put it on, I thought, it's a bit heavy. And out oh, it come, my mate come with a net, two pounder. I thought, yes, got a bream. Not a mermaid. <laughs> I think with fishing, it's not, it's not what you caught, it's what you feel when you catch a fish. You're like, you're over the moon. I got a fish, yes. Sometimes you rug a ring, biting, why not? And you chitter for hours. And there's nothing there. I don't mind that. Peaceful. I just want a peaceful life. All the wars going on, all the people getting killed with Russia and that. phrase gone fishing is often used to suggest someone's tapped out of reality, disconnected, that they're no longer working, 
But if anything, it's our day-to-day -day that can sometimes feel detached. A string of unfocused, transient moments. But in the mostly untroubled world of fishing, the past and the future have a tendency to melt away, sometimes leaving us in a place of total immediacy. At the very least, fishing is an excuse to break our cyclical routines and allow ourselves to reconnect with the natural world. Uh, I'm Matt, so I've been fishing since I was I was little really, like I guess around about eight my granddad took me on a canal, not this one. Um, I'm a marine biologist by trade. I'm 30 now, so I guess I've been fishing since, yeah, geez, 22 years. On and, on and off, you know. It's like being in on a secret, because like loads of people like walk past this, past this, past this and like past this or drive past it or whatever, and they'll see it. They, they, they might have a loose understanding that there's stuff under there, but I think that I think a lot of people don't fully comprehend like how complex life is underneath the surface. And I, you know, whenever you go fishing and you pull something out, you, it's like you're getting a little getting a little glimpse into that world that's uh, that you're not, that you're you're not a part of, you know. Even though it's got echoes of like an industrial past and it's probably got like nowadays it's probably get, gets the occasional sewage outflow into it, it's still, you know, still nice to sort of sit by a water source and watch watch the world go by, like grey wagtail, that kind of thing. The feeder is more than a traumatised landscape. It's an ongoing story of damage and repair. A body of water ceaselessly attempting to recover from industrial trauma. And it's the local fishermen that have frequented the canal. Their regular cleaning of its banks, reporting of pollution, sewage leaks, fish disease and fly tipping that are partly to thank for its improvement over the years. Like anyone that buys a anyone that buys a rod license is funding the environment agency, right? Um, and like you know, environment agencies like you know, environment agency will restock rivers and things like that, and like restore restore rivers, like you know, back to their natural state. And a lot of a uh, lot of weir removal and like physical barrier removal um, is going on by the EA now, which is you know, which is fantastic. Now, don't get me wrong, I think the you know. No organisation's perfect and the EA has its flaws, but, you know, I think the money that you put in to fishing, you know, does, will help the conservation of, like, a lot of these habitats. And I think a lot of people say, oh, conservation should happen for its own merits. And, like, yeah, fair enough. But, you know, I think if you've got, you know, people that are willing to put, like, their money and time into conservation of habitats and, you know they get enjoyment out of this, you know, and it's good for their mental health, then, you know, you know, why not? There's a lot to be, there's a lot to be said there for people that use an environment versus just observing it, you know? Yeah. There's a vested interest, there's a value that you associate with that environment. But I didn't realise until recently that we're the only country in the world with privatised water that boggles my mind I thought like I mean like I knew we were backwards but I didn't realize we were that backwards you know uh, and 
the fact that we have like regular instances of raw human shit being like pumped into natural waterways and things like that is like you know it's a direct consequence of them selling water off and making it a profit a profit making exercise rather than being like a service for people and wildlife and i mean like i mean this is i mean sorry to get political but like right. it wasn't it wasn't theirs to sell at the end of the day like it's you know it doesn't belong it doesn't belong to them it belongs to it belongs to us the people and like the country belongs to the country and like you know they sell off these things like water and then you know do nothing to actually like regulate the damage so yeah i just yeah it's one of those things and i just i despair of it really because like you like britain's got some of like the worst natural waterways in the you know in europe and yet we've got you know we've got such beautiful wildlife both both above and below the surface and it just seems like such a such a waste not enough being done to protect protect it you know course fishing inevitably encourages a deeper connection to nature and a better understanding of the fish animals, birds and plants that populate our water sources. And despite the feeder canal's compromising location, it's no exception to this rule. Though the spectre of Victorian industry still looms over the canal, the multitude of chemicals that once flooded into it are long gone. These days, the more ancient and subtle alchemy has picked up some momentum. And it's only when you become a part of the feeder's furniture that it fully reveals itself. Coots, moorhens, kingfishers, cormorants, herons, voles, water rats all make regular appearances, particularly near Netham Park, where the opposite side of the canal becomes more accessible. Here, a wilder river bank has managed to flourish, overgrown with dogwood, buddleia, hop an old man's beard and it's tucked a safe distance away from the main road in this tranquil little pocket that someone is about to catch their first perch so my name's ben i'm here with my two sons Milo and tia I'm 37. These two are five and seven years old. Um, Milo's been doing it all by himself recently and Tia's just getting interested. So, yeah. We live really close, just the other side of Netham Park. So uh, just making the most of having a, a spot close by. Well, especially while they're just getting into it and learning. This is our usual spot, and this kind of time, just as just before, well, late afternoon, yeah. seems to be good. Yeah, but we we've just caught um, yeah dace, roach, yeah, some really nice roach, but small size. But yeah. It's more more just for them getting used to it, really, and getting the hang of it. So it's great for that. We're not waiting around for a long time for the big ones. We're just whatever we can catch. <laughs> yep. Oh, yes. Oh, nice. Well done. Nice little perch. Perch, you're not a perch. 
That's a nice pig. Do you want to hold it? Oh, well, so you left him for a long time. Very patient. Yeah. Well, uh, oh, Do you want to hold this one? Get on, get on. I, let me hold it. Do you want to hold it? Can Look I at its fin the there. Oh, beautiful. The right, you just have to hold the sides. You got it? Well done. Alright, that's it. Chop it, chop it back. You've got a spiky dorsal fin, the perch, haven't you? Yeah. You've got to watch your hands with those guys. Is that the first perch you've ever caught? No. Oh. Yeah. It is with Tia, I think. Oh. I don't think he's caught one before, has he? It's good for everybody, especially if you're learning, to come down to places like this. This is good learning areas, so you own your river skills, if you like. Because river fishing's a lot harder than, you know, fishing on a pond. But you've just got to work hard for everything you get, like, you know. As late afternoon ebbs into early evening, the temperature drops and the feeder puts on a new face. The space is made up of so many fluctuating elements that a small shift in any of them can have a dramatic effect on the general feeling of the place. The water's expression changes constantly from a flat mirror of calm to a fast-paced swirling current The repetitious sound of the traffic has an uncanny knack of luring you into a false sense of security before spitting you straight back out with some violent industrial thud. Comforting and volatile in equal measures, the feeder is transient to the extreme and some of the people that pass through don't always treat the canal with the respect it deserves. Autumn's rot reveals a plethora of multicoloured doggy bags suspended from tree branches and the canal's banks often bear even stranger fruits. You know, the council do put bags up on the things for people to chuck their rubbish in. It's just that the people who leave the mess ain't normally fishermen. They floated past me, so I netted them out and I'll take it home. So there's three bottles that I've just netted out and uh, put them up on the bank and I'll take them home. Somebody left a load of um, clothes by that bridge. It's still there now. First of all, I thought it was somebody had stripped off and got in the water. And I was looking up and down here to see if anybody was in the water, but... Um, Abandoned tents, scorched grass, piles of empty cans, bottles and the occasional used syringe offer an insight into some of the extracurricular activities that take place down here under the cover of darkness. Most of the locals know better than to night fish the canal and some have learned the hard way. I caught a couple of uh, roach and I thought, well, I'll go a bit deeper. 
put me float up a bit and away it went and I had an eel on there about a well I don't I don't know how heavy he was about a three quarters of a pound or a pound I suppose and uh, this voice said um, a bit sick isn't it he said I said what do you mean sick how would you like a hook in your mouth I said you better go away my old son just like that and I went to to come up from the bank and he smacked me straight in the side of the head so I goes back my arm went in the water I thought bloody hell my arm was going like hell I'm going to have to do something you know with him and uh, I put my rod into this bush and I went to go up the bank after him and he smacked me straight in the side of the head with a block of wood and I thought this man, this boat's going to kill me and he said uh, don't think of following me once you're dead anyway I was shaking and I I thought it was the rain coming out of the air down my face it was blood Of all the feeders multiple personalities few are as dramatic as the working day's end The sun dips behind the Marsh Lane tower blocks and as the light fades the canal begins to meld into something more abstract, undefined. Street lamps flicker on as the rush hour traffic gets turned up to an ultra-violent 11. And as the heavy doors of industry close for the day, others open. The old engineering works halfway down the feeder was converted into a rehearsal space for musicians in 2003 and the dirge of doom metal has managed to slither its way into more than one interview. Heavy industry had a profound influence on British music in the 70s and 80s. Perhaps some of the bands are hoping a bit of the feeder's character will rub off on their music. Well, somewhere around here, we're, oh, it's the other side of the garage. They have, um, it's like a rave party, isn't it? They got a rave uh, studio or something there. I've seen people going in there. The old cattle market sits at the base of the feeder road, surrounded by the Totterdown Basin. It's a matrix of cobbled corridors and open warehouse space once used to gather large groups of bovine animals into one confined area for potential sale. The building now plays host to an ultra-commercial nightclub called Motion. The less said about those parallels, the better. In the summer months, the party gets taken outside to the walled courtyard, and from the outside looking in, cobblestone cauldron spills over with dry ice, air horns and flickering laser beams. Heavy bass resonates down the feeder and it's a surreal sight to watch fishermen perched along the canal of a summer's evening as the BPMs build from one adrenalised white knuckle climax to the next. 
When Motion first opened as a nightclub in 2006, the land surrounding it was almost all industrial, and parties would go on till 5 or 6am without complaint. Bristol Council have recently developed a deep concern for the noise pollution produced by the nightclub. We did have an individual come down here and he said, you won't be fishing here next year. I said, why is that then? He said, because all that's going to be developed. So, I haven't seen nothing in the paper about it. In 2018, a 10-acre brownfield site on the banks of the feeder was sold to a company called Square Bay. Redevelopment plans were recently given the green light, with hundreds of new homes, offices, shops, a secondary school and a 17-storey block of student flats set to sprout up in the very near future. Sensitive redevelopment has been assured and some of the benefits for the local people are evident. But in the Photoshop predictions of what the new space will look like, there's no fishermen to be seen. Instead, bougie couples line the banks, sipping Prosecco, and the canal itself is swamped with water sports enthusiasts. For decades, time seems to have stood as if suspended on the canal. But today, the JCBs, pile drivers and cranes have finally made their move. Soon, the feeder's unique character will be irrevocably altered forever. For better or worse, depends on who you're asking. I mean, I was fishing down the bottom there and they, I couldn't believe I packed up in the end. I, I baited up, put the ground bait out and then the, the uh, caterpillar across the road on the building started, started like, vibrating where I was sitting I was across the road and I was wobbling like a jelly and then and then right in front of me there was a, 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 a mini digger gunning out concrete I just and, I, and that was they'd clearly come back from lunch and I was just oh no mate I was I, was, I could feel it under my bum it was just, yeah it was uh, yeah that, that was a little bit too much but there you go temperature continues to drop, close to freezing now as we make our way back towards Templemead station. The occasional car only serves to highlight the eerie serenity that's now enveloped the feeder. On the opposite bank of the canal, a doom-scrolling security guard's face floats, illuminated in the window of his porter cabin. Sleeping JCBs scattered around him like kids' toys, 
across the freshly bulldozed brownfield estate. At this time of night, things are more heard than seen. The distant sweep of traffic on St. Philip's Causeway. The rats on the bank darting through the undergrowth. You can see the dew floating in the light from the street lamps. And you can feel the canal breathing. Steam floating spectral above its blackened surface as it ripples and curls in the darkness, full of secrets. It's 10pm and zero degrees on a Monday night in mid-November, and just when you think you found the line a fisherman won't cross in pursuit of their obsession, a flashlight down on the bank flickers back a retort. A shape in the dark begins to define itself. A solitary, hunched silhouette, rod clenched between gloved hands, leans in towards the rushing water, statuesque, watching, waiting. Your whole being rests lightly on your float, but not drowsily, very alert, so that the least twitch of the float arrives like an electric shock. You are aware, in a horizonless and slightly mesmerised way, of the fish below in the dark. At every moment your imagination is alarming itself with the size of the thing, slowly leaving the weeds and approaching your bait, or with the world of beauties down there, suspended in total ignorance of you. And the whole purpose of this concentrated excitement in this arena of apprehension and unforeseeable events is to bring up some lovely solid thing like living metal from a world where nothing exists but those inevitable facts which raise life out of nothing and return it to nothing. Thanks to all the contributing fishermen of the feeder particularly Len, who recited the closing monologue taken from Ted Hughes's book, Winter Pollen, published by Faber and Faber. Creative and technical thanks to Jim the Trumpet, Rowan Bishop, Laura Park and Isaac Holmes. <laughs>